It is not possible to escape giant's fever. The absolute ecstasy of San Francisco, San Franciscans is an infectious. Ticket reseller StubHub is a gauge for the level of excitement, with tickets going for $675 to $750 per ticket for last night's game. But what is especially inter of interest to me is the fact that fallen giant player Barry Bonds' name just never comes up anymore. It's as if the former darling of the team has disappeared without a trace, and probably for good reason. Who wants to be reminded of the Balco doping scandal in which Bonds was indicted, tried, and convicted for perjury and obstruction of justice for lying under oath about his alleged use of steroids? You may recall that in the 2011 baseball season, the, uh, champion home uh, the champion of a home run avoided a prison term when a federal judge sentenced him to 30 days of house arrest, two years of probation, 250 hours of community service with youth groups, and a $4,000 fine for providing evasive testimony to a federal grand jury. <clears throat> In an issue of Sports Illustrated this year, Bonds lamented his fallen status with an extraordinarily narcissistic comment. I gave my life and soul to that game. That's what's heartbreaking. That's the hard part of it. My reputation was kind of iffy anyway. I created that guy out there for entertainment only. Whether you hated me or liked me, you were there. And I only wanted you there. I just wanted you to see the show. That was it. All I ever wanted was to have a, a good time and enjoy it. It was fun to come out, and people would boo or yay or whatever. They all showed up to see whatever would happen next, and it motivated me to play hard. Well, of course, there's playing hard and there's playing hard. And yes, Bonds did live for the adulation that went well beyond the ballpark because he also began appearing on the cover of Muscle and Fitness magazine that championed his sledgehammer biceps and thick contoured delts worthy, worthy of Michelangelo's craftsmanship. Although fans have moved on, Bonds remains but one of many sad footnotes to the extreme to which players will go to win. I began my undergraduate education at CCNY a dozen years after the 1951 ball, a basketball point-shaving gambling scandal that involved 33 players at four universities in the greater New York area and three in the Midwest. It also involved organized crime. Three Jewish players at CCNY, with names like Cohen and Roth, were so good at scoring that they were able to win their NCAA and NIT tournaments, even with shaving points. They shamed themselves and their university, and the impact of their behavior cast a pallor over the university's sports long after the scandal was over. In the years that followed, Coach Nat Holman would warn his players 
about what would happen to players' lives if they chose to make some fast money. High-level sports doping, of course, did not end with bonds. Unrepentant, disgraced, narcissistic biker Lance Armstrong also utilized drugs to reach for the brass ring of fame and adulation. He, like others, lived for the win and damned the importance of sportsmanship and ethical behavior in order to elevate his success above others who played by the rules. Am I wrong, or are we seeing more of this kind of behavior? Or is it just that the paparazzi are better at ferreting out the sinners among us? It seems to me that we are living in epidemic times when the importance of the end far outweighs the means. Just look at some of the shabby behavior that has made front page headlines in recent months. Callous disregard for the welfare of young boys at Penn State when officials looked the other way and failed to report child sexual abuse was in order to protect the winning team. It is difficult for most of us to get our arms around what motivated the recent elite California Pop Warner Football League team coach who ran a bounty program compensating 10 and 11-year-olds with 20 and $50 rewards to intentionally injure opponents with hard-hitting tackles, not an isolated occurrence. This pursuit was modeled after the National Football League's New Orleans Saints team that orchestrated this shabby behavior for higher stakes. Knockouts were worth $1,500 and cart-offs $1,000 with payments doubled or tripled during the playoffs. Uh, you may remember Danny Almonte, who a decade ago appeared to be a, big, a, a bit big for his uh, 12 years of age. His 78-mile-per-hour fastballs knocked out 62 of 72 little leaguers he faced. Turns out his uh, birth certificate was falsified, and this was not the last time that Almonte would get confused about how old he was. In high school, he married a 30-year-old woman. In the, summer of, uh, in the summer 2012 Olympics featured Chinese badminton star Yu Yang and seven other teammates, along with teams from Indonesia and South Korea, who were disqualified for intentionally playing to lose, to lose to opposing teams in order to secure a better position in the next round of their doubles tournaments. What is happening to us? Why doesn't this bother anyone? Why doesn't anyone stand up and say no with presented, when presented with the temptation to gain the edge by cheating, by lying, by maiming? Consider for a moment, as we go back in time, Abraham, the protagonist of this week's Torah portion, Lech Lecha. It's a portion that focuses on what biblical scholar E.A. Spicer called the most fateful commencement in history. That journey was Abraham's pilgrimage from the Mesopotamian city of Ur of the Chaldees to the coastal plain of Canaan. And that journey helps us understand 
and reflect upon the decay of our own society. When Abraham left Mesopotamia, now in modern-day Iraq, Ur and other Mesopotamian cities were the epicenter of invention, innovation, discovery, and the place described as the cradle of civilization. The Ur of Abraham's day was a cosmopolitan, urbane, center of culture and learning without equal. Mesopotamia was a place of firsts, the first schools, the first writing system, the first written and published set of laws, the first farmer's almanac, the first library and library catalog, the first music and the first lullaby, the first aquarium, the first metallurgy, the first foreign trade, the first lawyer, the first, forgive me if you're a lawyer, the first economist, the first university, the first poetry, the first written literary epics. Mesopotamia fostered the Israelite religion that at a much later date would provide the climate for the writing of the Bible and the development of the centerpiece of rabbinic law and lore, the Babylonian Talmud. Fine textiles, palace reliefs, and monumental architecture of huge proportions added to the great grace and beauty to this remarkable region. It was the place to live. It was where anything worth happening was happening. Why then did Abraham set forth on his fateful commencement when he had everything he could possibly want at home? Why did he set forth from his remarkable homeland and head toward the coastal plain of Canaan where there were none of the conveniences of Mesopotamian culture? The answer, no doubt, lies in the corruption that Abraham saw in a, an urban society. An example is the construction of the Tower of Babel, whose objective, according to the Holy Writ, was to build us a tower and a city with its top in the sky to make a name for ourselves. Babel was to be built for self-aggrandizement. Let us make the greatest city ever known. Furthermore, the name of Babel, a combination of Bab and El, the Hebrew words for the gate of God, makes it clear that the builders of Babel hoped to reach God, perhaps for the purpose of overtaking heaven and of controlling God, thereby subverting God's authority. What hubris was demonstrated. This unmitigated hubris, this arrogance, this presumption, this self-absorption confused expanse for greatness, size for quality, towers for truth. Abraham must have been repulsed by a self-promoting society in which individuals thought of themselves as being more important than God. Abraham surveyed the Mesopotamian society that forced conformity on its citizens and was repulsed by the idea that he would have to raise his family there and think and act like everyone else and had to sign on to expected behavior 
no matter how unprincipled and how corrupt, even if it meant disregard for human life. In Babel, according to rabbinic legend, materials became more valuable than life. Writing in the Midrash, the rabbis suggested that as the tower grew higher and higher in height, it eventually took one year to get the bricks from the base all the way to the top. Thus, bricks became more precious than human beings. When a brick slipped, fell, and shattered, people wept. But when a man fell and died, his death was totally ignored. Even a woman in childbirth, the text claims, was not released from her labor as a brickmaker to give birth to her child. Abraham saw patent scorn for strong family and societal values, admiration for lawlessness, admiration for violence and poverty and urban blight, praise of pollution and congestion and corruption. In the end, Abraham escaped a society that thought itself to be more important than God and had utter disregard for human life. Which brings us back to the question of who is courageous in our era. Where are the Abrahams of today who will not tolerate a lack of sportsmanship and of values? Where are the people who, like Abraham, are called upon by God to begin a fateful commencement, away from corruption, away from dismissive regard for those who are downtrodden trodden and lost? How you vote on election day will determine what fateful commencement we set out on for the next four years. Choose wisely. Shabbat Shalom.